mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hi, I'm Raj Punjabi, head of identity content at HuffPost. And I'm Noah Michelson, head of HuffPost Personal. Welcome to Am I Doing It Wrong? The show that explores the all-too-human anxieties we have about trying to get our lives right. Raj, on a scale of 1 to 10, where is your anxiety right now? It's a good question. Today, I am at a gold star 3.5. I'm pretty calm. What about you? That's impressive. Mm-hmm. I'm at a 7. The mm. second that I enter Times Square, which is where we're recording, I lose my mind. I blame it on the off-brand Elmo's trying to hug you. <laughs> yeah, no, I forgot we were in Times Square. I'm more anxious now, too. You're not the only one. I'm not the only one. It seems like everybody is anxious these days. Mm-hmm. That's why this week we're asking, and we're asking it without judgment, are we doing anxiety wrong? Luckily, we have with us New York-based psychotherapist Renee Gonzalez for a session on anxiety. And he's not even going to charge us a copay. That is good because I don't have any money. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Renee, for being here. We're so excited to have you because we are all super anxious. I know I am. Can you fix us? (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good question. And listen, I also feel anxious. And I have to be honest with you guys. When I got the invitation, I had pretty intense anxiety for about two minutes it like shot up to an eight and then it went back down and I was like okay I can do this and and I'm kind of like putting that out there because I think a lot of us have anxiety and in the moment it feels like it's never going to end but it usually does Oh, thank you so much. So you're an expert in more ways than one. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So the first thing, you know, you said everyone has anxiety and they do. So the first thing I want to clear up in here, because this episode is for everyone, we know that there's different types of anxiety. So can you tell us a little bit about the difference between just plain stress or anxiety that's linked to certain situations and more disordered clinical anxiety. Stress and anxiety can be acute. It can be chronic, right? So sometimes it's as simple as I have a deadline and once it's over, I feel better. 
and I'm not anxious mm-hmm. or stressed yeah. anymore. And then sometimes it's like this very chronic thing where it just kind of keeps going. And usually that's like when we're in situations where a lot of things are just kind of continually coming up. Right. I would say that you kind of venture into the disordered area or camp once it's been going on for a while. So, for example, generalized anxiety disorder, that's like the famous one. Right. It's Mm -hmm. the most common one. That's the one I have. Mm, Fancy. Yeah. And so, you know, usually to even get diagnosed with that, you have to have it for about six months. And where you're having that anxiety, like most days, than not. Um, And there are a lot of different types of, you know, disorders around anxiety. But with GAD specifically, a lot of times the concerns are really about like everyday, somewhat mundane things. It's like, how are my kids doing at school? Um, You know, I have a commute ahead of me. Like, am I going to be able to manage this? commute? Is there going to be lots of traffic? Am I, am I going to be late to work? And so that's kind of more specific to GAD. Okay, super helpful. So it doesn't have to be, I think sometimes people think like, I have to be having three panic attacks a day to be diagnosed with something. But yeah. you're saying it can be this really low level, just constant anxiety that's invading our lives. And that could actually be a disorder that we could be diagnosed with. Exactly, exactly. And what I've noticed with people with GAD specifically, it's almost like their brains are latching on to different things. So it's like one stressor kind of goes away and then another one comes up. It's almost like our brain is always looking for the danger. So it can be really debilitating, but panic attacks too. I mean, those are incredibly debilitating and that's a whole other disorder, right? That's panic disorder. And so all these things, Mm. yeah, can really be um, a sign that you have an anxiety disorder. So from what I understand, it's kind of like a spectrum, right? Like you can have, you can feel these uh, emotions and sensations on a much lower level, but then it can go as far as having multiple panic attacks a day. Oh yeah. I mean, and it could go further, right? Because it could be, you know, you know, pretty gentle anxiety. It's pretty mild, but you know, in more severe cases, we're talking like, like you said, panic attacks or even PTSD where people are getting Mm -hmm. triggered and having flashbacks and having these really kind of uh, debilitating moments. Right. So it can really be very severe. I am 45 years old and it seems like in 2023, so many more people have anxiety than I remember when I was a kid. And obviously when I was a kid, I wasn't thinking about anxiety, but it just seems like in general, in in popular culture, in our culture, everyone is anxious now. I think you were saying, Raj, like 40 million people. Yeah, it's something like nearly 20% of the American population has been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. And lots of other people haven't been diagnosed. Right. Renee, is there a reason why... Now, it seems like more people are dealing with anxiety. Or am I just imagining that? Mm. In 1962, was everyone also super anxious? Yeah, is it all just like documented well, now? Right? Yeah. I would make the argument that in the 60s, people probably were experiencing anxiety, but the language around it probably didn't exist the way that it does today, right? And it was probably more stigmatized. Mm. But I would make the argument mm. that I think, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of us actually have a good reason to feel anxious. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the world. There are things that are going on like in our backyards that are pretty scary. And so I think that some of the anxiety that's been coming up makes a lot of sense. It's very reasonable. 
I like this idea, though, that maybe in the past we didn't have the language to talk about it or we didn't see ourselves in the world or other people like us with it. Totally. It's like coming out to like people say, like, why are there more trans people now? And it's like there probably aren't more trans people. We just didn't have the language and people didn't know that they were trans before. And so now it's like, are people more anxious? Maybe not. But like we have ways to actually label anxiety that we didn't 20, 50, 100 years ago. I I just think about even in certain uh, different demographics, like they called women hysterical or, you know, they call people crazy and unhinged. Like, you know, there, there was different verbiage around it. So Renee, I want to ask you, I know that there are, this varies depending on, um, who you are, but what are the physical symptoms of anxiety? Physically, right? Like that might look like a lot of muscle tension or muscle aches. You might start sweating, your heart rate, you know, it goes through the roof. Um, Mm -hmm. You might notice that you start shaking or, you know, some people get really uh, cold hands or feet or even limbs, right? So there's really like a, a kind of spectrum of physical experience around anxiety. And I think it's really important for people to kind of understand this because it helps people address the anxiety. You know, there are physical ways that we can address this. And then there are mental ways, right? There are techniques like in cognitive therapy that help you address some of the anxiety provoking thoughts, right? So when you try to deal with it, you really have to kind of come at it from the two different places. And that is mental, emotional, and physical. Mm -hmm. When I get anxious, I actually feel like I have like the proverbial pit in my stomach Mm. or like I'm being hollowed out. And sometimes it'll make me like, I'll have to go have something to eat because I feel like I have this hollowness inside of me Yes, and and I need to fill that somehow. Sinking too. Yeah. And it's like, or, or like my body's being wrung out like a wet towel. I feel that sometimes like for me, it really is very physical. It very much is for me too. I like to tell people that my generalized anxiety disorder is in remission because I've been in therapy for so long that I've learned these amazing coping mechanisms. But once in a while, when I feel it, I get the shivers, like I mm. shake a little bit and it's totally uncontrollable. It's it's like embarrassing and annoying. And yeah, and another thing is I talk incessantly. Like I feel the need to fill the space in my head. So I feel like there's so many, um, and I'm glad that we can talk about this in not a stigmatized way because I think people have felt these sensations and not known how to describe it. For sure. So I'm Mexican. So for a moment, I'm going to speak to Mexicans, but it tends to be seen as a very physical thing right? Different cultures kind of view it a little bit differently. And in Mexican culture specifically, it's, you know, uh, feeling that, you know, that rapid heart rate. It's like even feeling physically ill. That's kind of how people conceptualize anxiety in different cultures, which is, which is interesting. That's so interesting. I think too, any marginalized person is dealing with things in their life that other people aren't possibly. Yeah. And that makes your life harder. There is more to be anxious about. Yeah. Whether it's threats of violence, whether it's how you're going to pay the bills, whether it's just what's going to happen when you get to work and how are people going to react to you. Absolutely. Like, that can cause anxiety too. Yeah. And, you know, again, we'll go into this more, but just the stigma that comes with anxiety in many different cultures. Um, I know in in India, where my people are from, they link any kind of mental illness many times to like demonic possession. Mm. Like this is really old school. So any Indian Americans that are listening who are like, this doesn't happen anymore. It still does in some places, but it's very much linked to like a spiritual, you know, wrong that you, that has happened to you. And this is so, this happens in a lot of cultures. And it, like, I think education and really understanding the science and, and psychology of it is 
the only way out of that. I think that's true. But there is a lot of resistance, right? Especially in more traditional cultures. And I'll speak for Latinos specifically. I think that it's changing. But yeah, I think there's a lot of resistance to seeing this as, you know, the way we've come to see it, like, you know, Western medicine. I think there are a lot of reasons, too, that people who maybe even aren't marginalized also don't see it or don't deal with it. It's just like, number one, like, it's embarrassing, I think, still. There is still a stigma to say that I have a disorder or I'm dealing with something with my mental health. That you can't see. People don't want to admit that. It's hard to find ways to deal with it oftentimes, especially we're going to get into therapy and other coping mechanisms, but like you don't have the time, you don't have the money. It's just like there are so many ways that you can stay stuck in your anxiety because you don't know how to get out or you don't even want to admit that you have it. Totally agree. So now that we have kind of understood the different levels and spaces that anxiety can take up, I really want to talk about how we can do it better. Now, I know you can't do a disorder or a condition wrong, right? In a traditional (laughs) way, although I feel like I do anxiety wrong a lot. I really want to know how we can a, get a get a grip sometimes when we need to, you know, feel less guilty about it. So let's start talking about how we can cope. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about spiraling and catastrophizing? These are common anxiety-related behaviors I know I participate in. What is that and how can we stop doing that? Yeah. You know, I actually tend to use the word catastrophizing. Your mind is going to the worst case scenario. And in the process, you are getting really, really anxious. So catastrophizing is pretty brutal. um, And it can really kind of increase that anxiety. And, you know, there are different ways to combat this. But I think that one of the first things that we can do is learn to start labeling when we're doing this. And some of us are good at that. And some of us aren't, right? Some of us are like, okay, I'm spiraling right now. I am catastrophizing. So that's kind of like the first step. And what I tend to do with my clients uh, when they're in session with me is I'll often ask them, you know, what is the worst case scenario that's on your mind? And they'll, you know, they'll talk about it a little bit. And I find sometimes just talking about it can desensitize people in itself like a little bit. But usually I'll then ask, you know, what is actually the most likely thing to happen here? Like, is that worst case scenario actually the thing that you think is going to happen? Most of the time, it's not. And when that's the case, the next steps are easy. Because the next step is, okay, let's imagine that that thing that you think is going to happen actually happens, right? You might go into specifics around what that looks like. And then I would ask, okay, so like in a week after this, like, how do you think you're going to feel? And, you know, maybe like, oh, I still feel pretty nervous. You know, And I'll say, okay, what about in a month or three months or six months or even a year? And a lot of the time, I mean, the vast majority of the time, we get to a year and they're like, you know, I wouldn't even be thinking about it at that point. And I think it helps people understand that this is something that they can kind of pass through and that they're going to survive. And that can kind of de-escalate people a little bit. So I would really encourage people to try to maybe think about that when they're in a place where they're spiraling. My friend Emily is also a therapist and she did this. I was trying to sell my condo last year and it was sort of a nightmare. And I was really spiraling. And she said to me, okay, I want you to think about future Noah. Think about Noah in six months. Is he worried about this specific thing? Mm -hmm. And if he is, then maybe that's something that you need to address and you have to figure a way out of. But if Noah in six months isn't going to be worried about this, don't worry about this thing. Move on to something else. And I found that so useful. Yeah, It's like 
spend your worry bucks in the place that you need to spend them mm-hmm. and save your worry bucks for something you don't need to spend it on. Because the worrying also takes up so much energy. I've gotten physically tired from worrying about yeah. something where I'm like, I need to take a nap. Yeah. <laughs> and I also, I my first therapist, her name was Gail and I loved her. She was very grandma-like and she would always have a Diet Coke when we were mm-hmm. having our session. And she would say the same thing to me as well. She would say, okay, Noah, what is the worst thing that's going to happen if, if this happens? And I would say, I know you're right. It's going to be fine. And she'd say, no, actually, I want you to say out loud, verbalize Oof, that's terrifying, the though. worst thing. And then I would have to. And then she'd say, okay, even if that happened, you would get through that, wouldn't you? And when I sat mm-hmm. and thought about it, she was right. You know, it wasn't going to kill me. My life wasn't going to be over. And when I just sort of stopped to think about that and went through the motions of figuring it out, it like made that worry evaporate. Yeah. It's really useful. It's kind of a little mental board game where you like skip a few steps and you're like, where are we going here? Yeah. Yeah. So I love that. And it's something we can all do. I mean, I think it's great to be in therapy, but even if you can't afford it, you're not in it, there are these tools where you can stop yourself and just say, okay, what is really going on here? What's the worst thing that's going to happen? Do I need to be worrying about this? Yeah, absolutely. Catastrophizing specifically, they call it a cognitive distortion. It's a way of looking at information that kind of distorts your sense of reality. And so some other examples might be like seeing things as black and white, right? I'm either good or I'm bad. There is no in between. It might also be minimizing something that's actually really important or magnifying something, turning something that's not that big of a deal into something huge. It could be personalizing right? So these things take a lot of different forms. Um, And anybody out there who doesn't have access to therapy, but wants to learn more about this, I would say go to Google, look up cognitive distortions. A lot of times you'll find the list and it tells you exactly what to do to counteract them. So there are a lot of resources out there around dealing with this specifically. You know, I I was just telling Noah that looking things up or learning about them in therapy and in their exact terms makes me feel so empowered because mm. it makes me feel like this is not my fault. I'm not a jerk or a weak person. These are real things that are happening in my brain and they're happening to other people. And not only can I figure out what's happening, but I can probably stop it from happening. Yeah. It's so empowering. One of the wonderful things about being a therapist is that you learn to see these things in other people pretty easily. And so when I teach clients this, I say, okay, work on identifying this in yourself. But if you can't, try to notice them in other people. And it becomes like a superpower (laughs) because you start to realize, oh, this person is doing this. And so I might be interpreting them in this way, but actually... They are having their own internal experience and it probably has nothing to do with me. Oh my God. And it is sometimes easier to see stuff in other people than yourself. I have a friend who is currently going through a really tough breakup. And, you know, in in one of her more emotional moments, she was just feeling really bad about herself. And I was like, listen, we don't judge ourselves in this space. Like this is a kind space. However you feel right now is how you're going to feel. Everything is right and okay. You are not a bad person like for having these feelings. And then I was like, wow, I judge myself all the time for feeling sad about something, feeling anxious about something. And I'm like, okay, removing the judgment is probably a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And self-compassion. You know, I think a lot of people, when they hear about self-compassion, they cringe a little bit. At least this is what I encountered with my with my clients. But self-compassion can go a really long way in helping us be more accepting of our anxiety. And so, you know, I really encourage people to think about it and to try to practice talking to yourself in a voice that's very similar to how you would talk to somebody that you love. 
or even like mm. a child, right? It's like kind of like connecting with yeah. an inner child. Uh, that can be really helpful sometimes. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Am I Doing It Wrong? This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So Raj, tell me, how is your social battery right now? You know, today it's pretty high and vibrant, but it varies day to day. That makes total sense because it's super easy to ignore our social battery and spread ourselves too thin, especially with social gatherings picking up after the winter. Truly. Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. For me, therapy has been illuminating. Just to be able to process day-to-day anxieties has helped me so much. I kind of wish that for everyone. Well, if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash doing it wrong today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash doing it wrong. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Yahoo Finance. Raj, I've got a question that I've been asking myself a lot recently. Tell me. Am I investing wrong? Ooh, I see what you did there. But I'm sincerely asking because look, I have investments. I have an account here, a 401k there, and I'm really lucky I don't have any crushing debt. But until recently, I haven't had the confidence that I've been doing it right. I know what you mean. We all want to make sure we're making good financial decisions, not just doing whatever Susie Orman told us to do 10 years ago. (laughs) Exactly. But that's why I've been using Yahoo Finance. Tell me more about it. Well, with Yahoo Finance, I've been able to consolidate all of my accounts into one place. And I got to tell you something. It's been so much easier. Okay, Yahoo Finance. It's giving nostalgia. Absolutely. You know, I found Yahoo Finance to be incredibly helpful for tracking everything I need with all of my money. And as you probably know at this point, I'm quite wealthy. I know, spiritually and literally. I am not a wealthy one percenter yet, So would the service be good for me still? Oh, 100%. Yahoo Finance is good for everyone, from the very seasoned investor or just a normie like you who's looking for a little extra guidance. It gives you all the tools and info you need. So if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like Yahoo Finance will give me a holistic look at the financial news cycle, original editorial perspectives, and so much more. That's exactly right. And let's just say... Yahoo Finance is going to be the perfect place to link all your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including your 401k and other investments. Hell yeah. I cannot wait to make it rain with the help of Yahoo Finance. (laughs) 
So for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. yahoofinance.com. Once again, that's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Am I Doing It Wrong? It seems like a lot of the coping mechanisms are sort of trying to get people to, number one, understand what their feelings or thoughts are. So, you know, journaling, um, reflecting, that kind of thing. So identifying what you're feeling and why you're feeling it. And then it also seems like some of it is also understanding that feelings or thoughts are just feelings and thoughts. Like when I hear about people meditating, it's like, yeah, the purpose of meditating is like you can have these anxious thoughts come into your head, but then you let them pass by and you're like, that's just a thought and I'm not going to stay focused on it. Attached to it. Yeah. Um, What are some of the other coping mechanisms that you think maybe are even kind of 101 basic ones, but that people should be trying when they're experiencing anxiety? Now, are we talking about drugs right now or non-drug coping? No, I think non-drug. I think just like you're an average person and you're like, ah, I feel really anxious right now. What could someone do to deal with that? I would say the most basic thing or a good place to start would really be with breathing. And so a lot of times when we get anxious, our breathing kind of goes out the way. Dough, right? We might breathe very shallowly. We might actually hold our breath. I catch people holding their breath all the time, right? And so kind of being aware of that and learning to breathe is really important. And I would say a really good place to start would be, you know, you know, lay down, get on your back, put one of your hands on your chest, put another one in your tummy, right? And what you want to do is when you breathe in, you want to expand your diaphragm. So you want to make sure that your the hand on your chest either stays in place or goes down a little bit. And the hand in your stomach needs to come up as your belly's filling up with air. And you want to practice that for a while, right? And sometimes we have to do this for like 10 minutes, 15 minutes before we really calm down. Some people are really good at it and it works like pretty quickly. Um, but in general, I would say practice, practicing this is pretty important if you want it to be useful, but it will work. You know, at first when I heard about the breathing exercises, I was like, this is like some, you know, boo hockey, like it's too easy or whatever. Yeah. But once you do it, yeah. I, we do forget to breathe. This sounds really weird, but I notice too all the time that I'm like holding my breath or I have these like short, jagged breaths when I'm feeling anxious. But it kind yeah. of like, you know, strong arms your body into regulating itself. I was going to say the breathing, right? And the shallow breathing or the fast breathing, that really is um, usually partly responsible for some of the other physical reactions that we're having, like the shaking, for example. So regulating your breathing, it will slow down your heart rate. It will kind of keep the, the shaking in check. Wow. And now we're getting into a little more esoteric coping mechanisms, yeah. which I really wanted to do because I want to offer people who are listening to this some more unexpected advice. Because yeah. um, unless you're in therapy really digging into this stuff, you're not going to get to hear this. So like, let's hear more, Renee. Like, what's another coping mechanism, um, non-drug related still, that is like um, you don't think people know about? Well, here, here's oh, one I, I want to yeah. ask you about, Renee. What yeah. about like having sex? Like oh, yeah. an oh, orgasm, yeah. is that good for anxiety? That seems physical, yes. right? Have you, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of something called DBT. It stands for Dialectical Behavior Therapy. It's very practical approaches to dealing with 
all sorts of things, including anxiety. And if you ever buy one of these workbooks, it has the big list of pleasurable activities. I mean, there are like 300 mm. things on this list. One of them, I need this book. One of them is sex. One of them is masturbation, right? I mean, there's like so many different things that you can do. So I encourage people to kind of, you know, you can even Google the big list of pleasurable activities and that will give you a lot of kind of ways to distract yourself. Um, but I would say maybe like more, esot- more esoteric ones would probably be the ones that you would do like in therapy. So for example... Mm. There's something that I like to do with my clients called a thought record. It kind of trains people to to learn a new way of thinking. And so usually what we do is like, you know, we'll look at the at the trigger, right? It's like what brought on this anxiety? And then we'll try to figure out, you know, what was the automatic thought that came up? And, you know, we'll identify feelings that came up. We'll rate them on a scale from zero to 100. So maybe your fear was like a 90. And then we'll look at evidence that supports the automatic thought, right? So the automatic thought might be, I'm useless. So, okay, well, what kind of, you know, what evidence supports that? And they might say, well, that's just how I feel, right? That's the evidence. And I'll say, okay, well, what's the evidence that goes against that? And they're like, well, actually, I was really productive at work last week, and my boss actually gave me a compliment. And, you know, I was really proud of myself last Friday because I was so tired, but I came home and I, and I cleaned the house, right? And then I'll say, okay, let's now have a balanced thought. It's like, even though I feel useless sometimes, I actually get compliments sometimes for being productive. And sometimes I do things like clean my house when I'm really tired and I don't want to do it. And then they like re-rate, let's say, their fear or their anxiety and it's, you know, lower, And so Mm -hmm. if you can internalize that kind of thought process, it becomes automatic and you learn how to challenge things in your mind in the moment. And that could be so helpful. Yeah. That seems like the goal, right? I love a list too. I love a list too. I love crossing off a list even more than a list. And so I think you're right. Having these things where these concrete steps that you can take to shift the way you're thinking about something yeah. That seems really valuable. That shift in thought process is everything. I also have another tactic that I remember from therapy that I, I felt was very valuable. Um, this is again when I was having a lot of anxiety and actually a touch of um, mild depression. My therapist had me write a love letter to myself. Hmm. I was I had a very, you know, I was feeling very uh, bad about myself. And she had me write this detailed letter to myself as if I was talking to a close friend that I love about all the things that I love about this person, me, and um, where you know, how much I give to other people and how loved I am and just these kind, encouraging words. And I carried that thing around till it was ragged. It was like on a piece of paper and it was in my handwriting and I just used to read it. And after a while, I started believing it a little more. Yeah, completely. It it was so helpful. It sounds so cheesy, but it was so helpful. Well, I think too, so so often the the issue with all this is that we are believing things about ourselves or our circumstances or the world that aren't true. Mm -hmm. And so anything that can anchor us to the actual reality that we are good people, that we aren't going to get, you know, die in a fiery plane crash, anything we can do to actually sort of like tip the scales in our favor, that's going to be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on anxiety medication? (laughs) Yeah. Well, listen, you know, there's a, a lot, you know, there are a lot of different ways of thinking about this. With clients, you know, it's there's often resistance when it comes to medication. And I'll usually, you know, bring up the topic of medication when, you know, their anxiety or whatever they're kind of dealing with is really interfering with their ability to do their job or their health or their relationships. And oftentimes I'll say, okay, if you had a physical illness that made it really hard for you to go to work, 
would you take medicine? Would you go to the doctor? And usually the answer is yes. That doesn't always convince yeah. people. And I understand why, because there are some kind of scary stories out there of people who have these bad experiences and they do happen, right? I mean, you hear how some medications sure. can cause suicidality and that's pretty scary. You know, some people have other kind of bad reactions that aren't necessarily suicidality. They might be more physical, right? I would say in my experience, and I'm not citing statistics here, I'm just talking about what I know, what I've seen, that is extremely, extremely weird. And the vast majority of the other people who take, let's say, antidepressants, um, either they have a good experience or it doesn't really do much. And it could be as good as flipping a switch. And now you're having this different experience with your anxiety. And for some people, it's like pretty small, right? They feel a little bit better. They're less overwhelmed um, and not good enough, but it doesn't like turn it around for them, right? And that's more like your antidepressants. And then you have medications like Xanax, like Raj kind of just mentioning, right? Um, And that's more for acute anxiety. So there's Xanax and Clonopin and Ativan and uh, what's the other one? Valium, right? Those are some famous ones, but those are also addictive. And so we have to be Mm. careful with those. And more and more doctors, you know, they're not as willing to prescribe those medications because, I mean, if you think about it, you know, you're in a difficult emotional place and you take an addictive substance, that could be a recipe for addiction, right? Mm -hmm. And so we do have to be careful uh, with those medications specifically. Yeah. I do take Xanax occasionally, mm-hmm. but my doctor, I get it from my doctor and she yeah. will only give me 10 a year yeah. and she doesn't feel comfortable giving me more than that. Yeah, And so I really only use them when I really feel like I have to. So a couple of weeks ago I was moving, I was in the middle of a nightmare situation um, and I had been like sobbing for part of the day and it was just bad. And my boyfriend was like, maybe you need a Xanax. And I was like, maybe you're right. And actually it did. It just calmed me down. I took one and I was able to like get through everything. Um, So for me, in those really, really awful moments, I do like to have a little bit of chemical help. You know, and that's why I think it's important if this is a, if you're interested at all to talk to a psychiatrist about this, because like, you know, be monitored. I also have this thing where I do take a clonopin, I believe it is like a couple of times a year. Oftentimes it's like before a procedure or something mm-hmm. that makes me really nervous. And the thing I do is I like to keep myself accountable because I am really sensitive to the concept of addiction. So I'll call my mom and be like, I just took one of these or I tell my partner or whatever it is. And I let them know that if you hear me say this often enough, you know, let's have a conversation about it. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if addiction runs in your family, substance uh, use disorder runs in your family. It's something that you want to be careful about. But I also like the idea, like you were saying, Renee, like for most people, they can use these substances responsibly. Absolutely. They're not going to have a reaction that's going to be negative. And like, I think we have to also destigmatize people using, you know, chemistry to also help with, with their issues. It's medicine as well. like any other kind of medicine. Yeah. You know? So yeah. it's going to be different for everyone, but I think it can help. Something that comes up a lot is people worry that it's going to change their personality. It doesn't change your personality at all. It makes the symptoms of anxiety or depression a little bit more manageable so that they don't feel so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. That sounds lovely, actually. Um, I want to ask you about my favorite coping mechanism, which is therapy. Um, Before we get into, you know, how you can find a therapist if you don't have one, et cetera, uh, what's the best way to get the most out of therapy? Say you're say you're in therapy, and um, what's what should you be doing to contribute 
to a good session or feeling better? In general, what I tell my clients is you need to be thinking of therapy when you're not in therapy. That's number one. And number two, I want you to be keeping track of of the thoughts that are arising when you think about therapy. Are you making realizations? Are you connecting the dots in some way? Um, I've noticed that for some people, even thinking about therapy actually makes them more attentive to what's going on inside of them. And that in Mm. itself can be really helpful. Sometimes when we label something, we're just better able to deal with it. Right. Like recently I was talking to a client of mine and, you know, he's trying to cut back on his drinking. He's not like a serious drinker or anything like that, but we started talking about it. And then the next session he was like, you know, I never talk about this. And now that I did, I'm actually really paying attention. And I found myself actually drinking less. Right. And so it can be really simple and still bring about a result that's pretty helpful. Right. Just kind of being aware. And then you bring that to therapy and we talk about it. We talk about the progress. We talk about what you can do with this insight to, to help you reach a certain goal or to help you continue to like reduce anxiety or depression. So I am totally guilty of this. I don't have a therapist right now. I want one. I feel like the barrier to entry for a lot of people, myself included, is just like, it's going to be so much work to find one. How do I do it? I'm going to have to like go on dates with them till I find the right one. It could be five people. Um, Yeah. What should people just when they are thinking, if they're listening right now, they don't have one. What's the first step to just getting a therapist? What do you think? I mean, I guess the first step that I can think of is to go to a directory. And there are like many different ones, right? So I'll I'll give you a couple. So like Psychology Today is a really big one. You can really access that anywhere in the country. You know, you can put in your zip code, you can put in your insurance and it'll kind of filter everything for you, even by like what kind of issues you're trying to address. ZocDoc is amazing. And you could also just schedule the appointment right then and there on ZocDoc. There's like My Wellbeing. That's a really good one. I think there's one called ZenCare. I've never used that one, but I know a lot of people use that one specifically. And there are really so many more. Um, I'm a therapist, for example, who's on Alma. And so Alma is a directory, um, but they also connect you to the therapist and you work with them on that same platform. Uh, And Alma is actually really wonderful. I highly recommend them. And also like you want to connect to somebody on a personal level. For a lot of us, especially if you're POC, a lot of us want a therapist who's either also a POC or uh, you can tell that they have a lot of experience with that population or yeah. are sensitive to that population because it's really about the human connection. It's it's what I think is actually the most important kind of aspect of therapy and that relationship. Yeah, because you don't want to spend half the session explaining your cultural nuance or, you yeah. know, queerness or, or feeling judged. That's even the worst, you know? Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Now... I know I want to ask when you're on this search, uh, you know, I didn't have insurance at one point and I, you know, I use my Medicaid to help me find someone. How do you find someone if you don't have insurance? Because paying out of pocket is like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. To those of you out there who might be listening and you don't have insurance and you're not ready to pay like $200 for a session, there are other options for you. I would start off by looking into a nonprofit. 
Uh, there's one in New York City that I know of called the Postgraduate Center for Mental Health. Uh, I used to work there for a while. And if I remember correctly, um, they do sliding scale. There's another one too called Community Counseling and Mediation. So they all do sliding scale and they're very, very reasonable. So they will go as low as $35 a session. And if anybody kind of knows what therapy costs, that's actually like a really, really good deal. So if yeah. you can win it, you know, I would maybe start there. And if doing weekly is too much, right? Because let's say, so if you do $35 a session, that's what, like 140 bucks a month. So, you know, you might want to say, let's do bi-weekly to start. Um, but if you don't have nonprofits like that close to you, you can find therapists like on psychology today, it usually will state if they do sliding scale and you can ask them, you can say, Hey, listen, this is my financial situation. I really need the help. And I'd love to, to meet with you. Um, can you, you know, can you charge me less? Can you charge me $80 instead of however much? Um, a lot of therapists are willing to negotiate. And so I just want to kind of put that out there because I think a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, I, that, I had that beautiful case. A therapist negotiated with me and I was paying $40 a session for a whole year until I could afford to pay more. And it was the best possible thing she could have done for me. That's incredible. Actually. Yeah. Okay. So now that people are talking about anxiety more and the, and we're fighting the stigma on it, I feel like in some cases... I use anxiety as a crutch mm. and I can be like, uh, I can't go to that thing. I'm feeling anxious today or like need to take day. Cause I'm say it again. I need to take a sick day. I'm feeling anxious. Now, look, that is a viable cause to be, you know, to take a sick day. But I feel like once in a while I have used my anxiety as a crutch when I could have fought and really like found the power to do life. But I'm like, no, I'm, a, I'm an anxious girly. You know, how do we avoid using our anxiety as a crutch? Yeah. Wow. That's an excellent question. It, it makes me think about the conversation around self-care, right? Because I think, mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of people think of self-care as, you know, I'm just going to like not do that thing because I'm not feeling great or I'm feeling anxious. And listen, there is a time and a place for that. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think that we really need to think about what's going to be helpful in the long run. So for example, right. you know, I'm thinking about Raj and her example around like, I'm not going to go to that thing because I feel anxious. So like, if that happens a lot, let's say like you get social anxiety when you hang out with your friends and you, so you start kind of blowing them off because you feel anxious. I think what might happen is you're going to feel more anxious in the long run because your friends are going to maybe start moving on and they're not going to invite you to things and it can really have an impact on those relationships. So I think you want to think about like what's truly going to be helpful in the long run versus yeah. what's going to help me just in this moment. Because sometimes that can be actually counterproductive, right? So yeah. I would think about that. There's a big difference between taking care of yourself and setting boundaries and being a dick yeah. like and just, you know, being extremely selfish. Exactly. I think. I agree. You're right. Yeah. And being afraid when you have good reasons to be afraid. Yeah. Or not wanting to do something because you actually have a legitimate reason. Yeah. And then also avoiding it because you're just giving into that anxiety. Giving into it. Yes. I don't want to be, I don't want to do that. Yeah. No. What about using anxiety for good? Are, are there ways in which actually having some anxiety actually might aid us in our lives or help other people. And to add to that, um, there's this great article that I, I linked to in our little note that uh, 
talks about how sometimes anxious people are really good in crises. Could you say anything about that, Renee? It really is kind of like a call to action. And so mm-hmm. sometimes it can really kind of propel us to survive a situation that's really kind of difficult. And I'm thinking here about yes. like fight or flight responses, right? It's like your body is going into this mode that is making it more likely for you to survive. So in situations like that, the fear or the anxiety can actually be really helpful. And I think in other situations too, it could be a driver for us, especially when we kind of want to stop feeling this way. It's like, well, I know if I just kind of face this, eventually like this anxiety is going to pass. And so I think in moments like that, absolutely. I think anxiety can be a driver. You know what? It's funny that you say that because uh, some of my girlfriends have told me that they like having me around in high stress situations because I seem to know what to do because I've already like thought about the worst case scenario. Like I've been um, a lot of people's bridesmaids and when things run amok, I'm like, okay, who has duct tape and a scissor? And like all of a sudden I like MacGyver something and people are like, wow, anxious Raj is here to save the day. (laughs) Like I've already thought how about how I can fix this situation. I think it can be, you can be a little anxious superhero sometimes. I'm, I'm not, I'm not an anxious superhero. I'm just anxious. <laughs> I'm just the one in the corner being like, fix it, Raj, fix it. We make a good team. Yeah, then. exactly. Bounce each other out. You'd be a good therapist, Raj. I can see that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That com- that means a lot coming from you. I would give you my money. Oh my and, God. And my worries. I, I, will hold, I will hold them safely in my bosom. Yes. <laughs> nice. Renee, thank you so much. I feel like I learned a lot today. I don't know about you, Raj. I do too. And I feel less anxious somehow. (laughs) Well, good. I'm so glad that you're both feeling better by the end of this um, podcast. I was going to say session, even though it's not really a session. uh, (laughs) We're not paying you, Renee. We're not going to pay you. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to be here. Um, and And there's really so much more to get into with anxiety, but I think this is a really good start for sure. And just so we can leave people with something, uh, if they do want to, you know, order a book on on anxiety and learn a little more, would you have any recommendations? Oh, God, that's such a good question. You know, I, I'm going to be honest. A lot of the books that I have are for professionals specifically. But I will say this. Mm. If you go to Amazon, there are so many workbooks out there about anxiety. Oh, workbooks. Yeah. yeah. And you can find them and they will, you know, they'll teach you coping skills. They'll teach you about anxiety, why it is, you know, where it comes from, you know, all those different things. And so I wish I had like one place that I could just kind of send you to, but I don't have anything off the top of my head to be honest with you. Sorry. No, about the workbooks that. are helpful. No, yeah. it, gives, it gives people something to do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. We really, really, pre- I learned a lot. We really appreciate it. Of course. Anytime. Thanks for having me. It's time for Better in Five. These are our five biggest takeaways from this episode. Okay, first things first, figure out what type of anxiety you're actually experiencing so you can address it in the best way. Number two, it's so easy to spiral out of control, but there are concrete ways to talk yourself down. Like, why don't you work through what's the worst thing that can happen and why it's probably not gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Number three, The mind-body connection is so real. Breathing techniques can help you get out of your head and back into your body. Number four, prescription drugs can change your relationship with anxiety. So have a conversation with your doctor or your therapist if you're curious. And number five, therapy can be everything. It can be life-changing, I can testify. Find a therapist who you can be your true self with. Okay, Raj, now that we've had our session with Renee, do you feel better equipped to tackle your anxiety? 
Well, even though I've been in therapy for the past 342 years, I still feel like I learned more from this session. I did too. I loved that list of the pleasurable things that you can do to distract yourself. I want to Google that immediately and start doing them. Yeah, I want to do like 30 of them before I leave the podcast studio. Because we are anxious. Yeah. I think people listening to this are anxious. We fly our flag proudly. I would love to meet someone who doesn't have anxiety. Yes, please come and be a guest. Yeah, they don't exist. Email us because we want to meet you. Um, But since we all have it, we should figure out ways to deal with it. I totally agree. And I think we'll all be better for it. Amen. Anyway, until next time, as long as there are things to get wrong, Raj and I are going to be right here to help you do them better. That's right. Be well. Do you have something you think you're doing wrong? Email us at amidoingitwrong at huffpost.com and let us know. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com